Good afternoon, everybody. Um, there is a handout for Jennifer Nagel's talk. I hope it was, it was at the back. I, has everybody got one? There's, if you could perhaps if someone could pass them forward in a, some sort of um, generous and systematic way. Um, and there are some extras there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a whole pile at the back. So if you could sort of gradually cascade the knowledge forward to the front of the hall. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to um, introduce our final speakers for, for today and the final speakers for this year's joint session. And we're going to start off, um, each speaker will speak for about half an hour, and we're going to start off with Tamar Sabo-Gendler, who is going to talk on the subject of the third horse. Tamar, welcome. Thanks so much. Am I audible in the back? Okay. So one of the nice things about giving a paper at a conference that you have to submit a year before is that, like the audience, uh, refreshing your memory as to its content uh, is something that brings with it great excitement. So I'm going to talk through the main themes of the paper under the assumption that some members of the audience have had a chance to look at it, but that most of you haven't had a chance to see what I mean by the notion of the third horse. So... If you look at the works of Plato, you see encoded in them at least two different pictures of what human psychology looks like concerning the relation between what you might think of as the rational part of the soul and what Plato later refers to as the non-rational parts of the soul. On the one hand, there's a picture which you see in the early dialogues, most famously the Protagoras, which says that knowledge is a noble and commanding thing which cannot be overcome and will not allow one, if they only know the difference of good and evil, to do anything which is contrary to knowledge. And that picture of the human soul is often contrasted with a later picture that occurs in the Phaedrus and most famously in the Republic. Here's the metaphor from the Phaedrus. Let us liken the soul to the natural union of a team of winged horses and their charioteer, one guided by verbal commands alone, that's what Plato calls spirit, the other, companion to boasts and indecency, barely yields to the horsewhip and the goad combined. Let's call the first of these views, the view according to which knowledge is a noble and commanding thing which cannot be overcome, Socratic intellectualism, and the second of these views, faculty psychology. What I want to bring out in this paper is that even the view of faculty psychology, the view according to which there can continue to be forces to the contrary, even in the face of full rational understanding of a course of action, is not itself strong enough. And the way to think about that is the following. The Socratic intellectualist view says basically this. There's a dominant faculty that's capable of controlling attention and behavior in a way that not only produces right action, but also silences inclinations to the contrary, at least in idealized circumstances. That is, there's a capacity that we have that brings a kind of unity to our psychological experience 
such that recognizing the world to be a particular way brings in its wake a readjustment of the remainder of our psychological apparatus. Whereas the faculty psychology view says that even in the face of explicit, well-reasoned conscious awareness of a claim's truth, either a normative or descriptive claim's truth, one may continue to feel residual inclinations towards disavowed, inappropriate, and misguided experiences and courses of action. Traditionally, this image, the image uh, portrayed in the faculty psychology view, that even in the face of explicit, well-reasoned awareness of a claim's truth, you can continue to feel residual inclinations to the contrary, is spelled out in the metaphor that I alluded to earlier, that there's on the one hand a charioteer reason, and on the other these unruly parts of the soul whom reason seeks to control, spirit, and appetite. But missing, or at least explicitly missing, from the traditional ancient philosophical picture is the recognition that in addition to spirit and appetite, which are felt quite often phenomenologically to be in tension with reason, as in cases of weakness of the will, there is also a third horse. Would you like to see him come in again? A third horse association whose effect in distorting our behaviors and responses is exactly as profound as the effects of spirit and appetite, but who isn't so easily accounted for on a traditional faculty psychology view. Because whereas the conflict between reason on the one hand and spirit on the app and appetite on the other is typically felt as a conflict between pressure in one direction, pressure in another, as in a case where there's a long-term goal and a short-term goal, the achievements of which uh, come apart, association's divergence of the charioteer from its path often occurs without associated phenomenology. So what I want to talk about in the remainder of this paper are some of the roles that association plays in redirecting the charioteer. And to suggest that that poses a kind of challenge to the reading of the Socratic intellectualist picture that I'm giving that is even more powerful than the challenges posed by spirit and appetite. Let me start by giving you a sense of how it is that I think about our psychology and its relation to our actions in the world. So it seems to me that one of the things that's been demonstrated decisively by empirical work in psychology over the last century and by reflective work in wisdom traditions throughout the last millennia is that most of what embodied creatures like us do is done neither under what philosophers would call the guise of the good, that is, the representation as something to be achieved, nor under what Michael Stalker or others might call the guise of the bad, that which is to be avoided but which is nonetheless for some reason attractive. But it is done to play slightly loose with the metaphor because it isn't represented as such under the guise of the automatic or habitual. That is, most of what we do and most of the actions in which we engage 
are the result of overlearned routines for dealing with the world, exactly the sorts of routines that Aristotle and, in fact, Plato spend so long discussing the need to cultivate. And this is not a shallow fact about human behavior. Given how we're built, that is, as animals among others, the portion of thought and action that is under direct reflective control will inevitably be small, and it will be small no matter how much philosophy we study, and more importantly, no matter how much therapy we undergo. The implication of these two claims is quite profound. So what are these claims? The claims are that most of what we do is the result of habitual associations that we form on the base of encoding information about patterns in the world as we encounter it and recognizing ways of coping in a world that is patterned in those ways. So that's the first. And the second, that there's no real technique for embodied creatures like ourselves to overcome this deep fact about ourselves. So what's the implication? The implication is that the most important moral project in which we can engage is that of structuring our internal and external environment so that the habitually and associatively guided non-reflective behaviors that are induced by circumstance line up with what's mandated by our reflective and meta-reflective commitments. That is, because we are creatures whose patterns of response to the world are conditioned by our associative experiences, the more experiences we have that lead us to have expectations that the world will be a particular way, the more likely we are to anticipate the world being that way, the more likely we will be to interpret ambiguous situations as manifesting those sorts of features, and the more likely we will be to act as if the world not only is but should be that way. So if our aim is to cultivate patterns of response to the world that accord with our reflective commitments, we need to structure our environments in such a way that those come to be the expectations that we have. But it also implies that if we're surrounded by conditions that we reflectively consider to be unjust, there are predictable ways in which such a project is doomed to failure. So let me just give an incredibly simple example of the ways in which we encode information, and then I'll run into the more detailed ones uh, in the talk. So imagine that you are presented with a sequence of letters and numbers so that just more than chance, vowels are followed by even numbers and consonants are followed by odd numbers. You will, whether you realize it or not, begin to encode those patterns of relevant relevant frequency. That is, as long as it differs from chance at all, if the sequence is long enough, it will come to be the case that when there is a vowel presented to you, you will expect it to be followed by an even number. And when there is a consonant presented to you, you will expect it to be followed by an odd number. And two things will happen. One of the things that will happen is that when a vowel is followed by an even number, 
No cognitive energy at all on your part will be extended to processing that information. You'll just hear the vowel, hear the even number, and go on. Whereas if a vowel is followed by an odd number, there'll be a moment of expenditure of energy that will be devoted to uh, noticing that a pattern that you had expected had been violated. And the second thing which I'd already alluded to is that in any case where there's ambiguous information, you see something that looks a little bit like a three and a little bit like an eight, you'll be inclined to interpret it as the number that you were expecting. That was not a comment about numbers and letters, obviously. That was a comment about social categories. That was a comment about gender. That was a comment about race. That was a comment about class. Okay, so let me, with that preface in place, say a little bit about how I understand Socratic intellectualism, why it is that I think the view is implausible for creatures like us, and then run through two particular examples that I talk about in the paper that I know Jennifer will be talking about in her comments. So Socratic intellectualism, remember I've given you this quote from the Protagoras, is the view that knowledge is a noble and commanding thing which cannot be overcome and will not allow one to do anything contrary to it. It is, continues the passage, an error to believe, as the many do, that people might act contrary to knowledge because they are pulled in some direction, because they are overcome by pain or pleasure or some other affection, or that they might know the things that are best and not do them when they might. So I take it that implicit in this notion of intellectualism, or at least arguably implicit in this notion of intellectualism, is a view that I'll call zero residue correction. That knowledge of the right thing to do eliminates all tendency to perform actions to the contrary. And one might, if one thinks that actions and omissions are deeply different things, have a counterpart view, which we could call sufficient force prompting, according to which knowledge of the right thing to do is sufficient to bring one to perform that action when the possibility of doing so arises. So what zero residue correction predicts is that we will feel no residual temptation towards a contrary course of action once knowledge has determined which course of action is correct. That uh, the metaphor uh, that Plato uses uh, sometimes and that Jessica Moss has done wonderful work explicating is that the art of measurement completely does away with the effect of appearances. That somehow once we understand the true nature of the situation, the inclination to be pulled by its surface features in contrary directions disappears entirely. And likewise, if you think the omission commission a deep one, the analogous view on the sufficient force prompting side says that one feels no residual temptation towards failing to engage in a prescribed course of action once knowledge has determined its correctness. That is, that the gap between information, motivation, and action is eliminated completely. I think this is an inaccurate description of what it is to be a creature like us. And one way to see that is to think about what uh, the experience is of sitting in the library reading what one knows one should, 
fully engaged and involved in the value of figuring out just why the tyrant is 729 times less happy than the oligarch. And suddenly finding oneself <laughs> on Facebook. Uh, the problem with intellectualism can be brought out, I think, if we think about its perceptual analog, something that Plato himself plays with at nearly every point that he presents the topic of weakness of the will. So if you think about what the intellectual analog for perception would be, it would be that the knowledge of the actual nature of something eliminates all tendency to experience it as having features that it lacks, and likewise that knowledge of the actual nature of something eliminates all tendency to experience that thing as lacking features than it has. So that knowing that one's thumb is smaller than the moon should eliminate the tendency to experience one's thumb as seeming larger than the moon. Or the experience of uh, seeing these as a man kicking the Tower of Pisa, people dancing on a banana, a pencil looking bent, the Muller liar lines looking of different lengths. I think that intellectualism is false for perception, and I think it's likewise false for human experience with regard to normative commitments. And that's because realizing that something is one way is, I think, for very deep reasons about how we're structured, compatible with experiencing it as being some incompatible way, even if I focus clearly and explicitly on the discrepancy between the way things are and the way things seem to be. Likewise, realizing that some course of action is one that I ought to carry out is fully compatible with my actually failing to carry it out, even if I focus, and, and even with my uh, actually failing to be motivated uh, fully to carry it out, even if I focus fully and explicitly on the gap between what I ought to be doing and what I'm actually engaged in doing. Moreover, I think this is a pattern which reveals itself over and over in our thinking. So in other work, I've written about a notion that I call a leaf, according to which it is perfectly possible for us to have a belief that tells us, for example, as we step out on this skywalk, whose floor is glass, that we are safe, but an A-leaf, an automatic, associative, overlearned kind of animal response, according to which we experience it as dangerous, or to use a wonderful slide that Ray sent to me, I can believe that these cupcakes, these are venereal disease cupcakes, uh, made of the finest, finest ingredients, uh, raspberry jam and a particularly delicate kind of imported coconut, uh, I can believe that these are edible and nonetheless have an inclination, despite my profound knowledge of the deliciousness of their ingredients, uh, not to consume them or to take a slide uh, from uh, something that Louise Antony sent me. I can visit Monica Bonvicini's restroom on the streets of Milan and believe that the walls are totally opaque. However, when I step inside, and it looks like this, I may find it hard <laughs> to engage in the action that was initially intended. 
Not, I think, because I don't believe that it's opaque. I can walk out here 100,000 times and check the walls again and nonetheless uh, feel uh, the inclination uh, well, without acting on it, so to speak. Uh, that should not be surprising. In fact, there's nothing that should be less surprising given the kinds of creatures that we are. We're the kinds of creatures whose processing of information about the world occurs in distributed fashion throughout an apparatus that looks roughly like this, each of whose parts is responding to certain aspects of the distal and proximal stimuli that are interacting with it. So whereas there is a small part up front, the prefrontal cortex, that is somewhat charioteer-like, the brain is actually the best business manager on the planet. Anything that doesn't need to be taken care of up front in the high expense front office space is immediately given the industrial revolution and sent backstage to some part of the brain that is able to deal with it with less discretion and more routine. Couple that with lots and lots of pieces uh, that come via evolutionary pathways uh, with the capacity to solve certain localized sorts of problems. And it shouldn't be surprising that contemporary psychology takes as an undeniable given that the human soul has what philosophers would call parts. So everything from Fodor's traditional distinction between higher cognition on the one hand and the relatively or completely encapsulated modules that you get in early 1980s Fodor, all the way through the various versions of dual processing theory that you get in Kahneman-Tversky and the others. It is, an, an, un, it is a universally held premise among psychologists today, in part because human brains look like this, that at the very least there are two ways of processing information, and in most cases a recognition that this, which is called system one, is in fact systems one. So Stanovich explicitly calls it the autonomous set of systems. Fodor pluralizes, etc. Okay, so that's by way of getting us to two horses, and now I want to get us to three. So let me talk about some cases which I think aren't particularly easily accommodated by a two-horse model, but which exemplify what I'm talking about when I speak of the ways in which association poses challenges to the strict version of Socratic intellectualism as articulated in those middle slides where I characterized it with some arrows in blue. Tim, where am I on time? I will speak very quickly. So a uh, classic mode of investigating a phenomenon known as implicit bias uh, in contemporary psychology involves sending out otherwise identical resumes on the top of one of which it appeal, appears a name typically associated with a man and on top of the other a name typically associated with a woman 
or on top of one, an unmarked name, on top of the other, a name associated with a particular racial group, in this case, a name typically associated with individual of African descent. And what's found over and over in these studies is that you send out identical resumes, one with Thomas Smith, one with Tanya Smith, one with Thomas Smith, one with Tyrone Smith, and even though the content of these resumes is in the two cases identical, the interpretation of the information is guided by that odd even number thing that I talked about. That is a framework of understanding and a framework of expectations about the world determines how it is that ambiguous information is presented. So here's a recent study done at Yale where resumes of reasonably qualified undergraduate seniors uh, so there was one resume sent out, a reasonably qualified undergraduate senior who was applying to work in science lab. And the name at the top of the resume was either a male name or a female name. And this resume was sent out to men and women scientists at universities throughout the United States. And the person was asked, they received only one copy of the resume to evaluate how competent, how hireable, and how much mentoring they would likely give to the candidate. And in each of the instances, the male candidate was judged to be a full point on a five-point scale more competent, a full point on a five-point scale more hireable, a full point on a five-point scale more mentorable. That is, the estimate of the amount of time that would be spent on mentoring in this case was higher than in the other. How does this come about? Human beings, in fact, finite beings in general, of which we are only uh, the least finite instance, it, it seems, uh, make sense of the world in terms of categories. Why do we make sense in terms of, of the world in terms of categories? Well, categorization solves two problems. It solves the problem of overcomplexity. Our world is complicated. Our cognitive resources are limited. Classifying objects into groups lets us navigate effectively in an environment teeming with overwhelming detail. And it also solves the problem of experience poverty, right? We need to figure out whether a particular object that we encounter is going to have a particular set of features on the basis of its surface. And if we didn't have categories by which we made sense of things, we would never be able to predict that solid things when you sit down on them tend to stay up, bread when you eat it tends to nourish. In any given encounter, an object presents us with only a few of its potentially relevant features. Classifying objects into groups allows us to readily extrapolate properties that it's likely to share with other members of its kind. The problem is that if we make sense of the world in terms of categorization, three things happen. The first is that categories encourage us to look for similarities within categories and differences across categories. That's what it is to make sense of the world in terms of categories, is to have your attention naturally drawn to within category similarities and to between category differences. A consequence of that is that there are all sorts of early processing effects as the result of making sense of the world in terms of categories. Categories influence how information is sought, how it's perceived, how it's remembered, how it's judged, so that we're more likely to identify congruent information and less likely to attend to incongruent information. And it also leads to the automatic activation of a train of associations. Encountering or thinking about a member of a well-learned category activates what I would call an elif, an innate or habitual propensity to respond to an apparent stimulus with an automatized representational affective behavioral triad. 
Okay, so I won't go through this slide, but this basically says you take a spectrum which is continuous, you divide it into categories, and you perceive things that are spectrally equidistant as being further apart if they lie on different sides of a line. And we have similar things with all sensory modalities. So similar things with sounds. And what holds for colors holds for colors. That is, it holds for social categories as well. OK. Uh, so implicit bias uh, is a phenomenon which exploits this feature of our minds. Implicit bias is a circumstance in which one has explicit, sincere, avowed, egalitarian beliefs about a particular social group but where one's implicit disavowed beliefs, that is the association that one has as the result of having been raised in a society structured by certain sorts of hierarchical associative relations, uh, one's implicit attitude is non-egalitarian. One has a certain kind of valence that is associated with membership in a certain group, uh, and it can be measured in all sorts of cool ways and gives rise to all sorts of things, uh, including cycles of interaction wherein if there's an expectation that somebody will behave in a bias-confirming way, there's a tendency for that behavior to become manifest as the result of the interpretation of ambiguous cues uh, coming non-chancelly to one as opposed to the other interpretation, and then a cyclical response as the result of the interaction. Uh, we see this strikingly in a series of studies carried out with a phenomenon called shooter bias, where basically you're asked to engage in a video game uh, where you're shown an image of either a person of European or a person of African descent holding either a cell phone. Here's a person of European descent holding a cell phone, or a gun, here's a person of African descent holding a gun, here's a person of African descent holding a cell phone. And in study after study in this paradigm, participants are more likely to shoot an armed target if the target is African American, so that you see a tendency to perceive, uh, or at least to react as if one did perceive, an ambiguous object in the hands of a person of African descent as if it were a gun. Most importantly, the correlation in these studies is not with one's degree of explicit bias, but rather with one's awareness of the stereotype. That is, knowing that there is this kind of association is sufficient to bring it to saliency in moments like this one. Here's a, a slide about mechanism. Can I take four more minutes to run through the study that Jennifer needs to critique? Otherwise, <laughs> four more minutes. How many do I really have so I know how guilty to feel? <laughs> Minus one minute. <laughs> Good. I just want to know, like my nation, just how much debt I have. All right. So the weapon gun task, which I gave you, sort of the shooter bias cases are, are the original ones. One of the things that is then interesting, insofar as I'm interested in this third horse and how you regulate it, is the question, what techniques are available for horse whispering, right? So what I've said to you is a whole bunch of what we do when we walk around in the world is walk around in the world with the associations that we've encoded implicitly, causing us to inter interpret ambiguous information in certain ways, act on them, become self-reinforcing, et cetera, et cetera. So what techniques are available for countering these sorts of encoding of information. So a follow-up task on the one I described is one where you're just presented with a visual image of a face and then either an image of a 
a tool or a weapon, so you have the four-way pairing, faces of African and European descent with tools and guns, and what you get uh, here, as in all such studies, is this familiar shape, uh, the tendency to overinterpret the weapon as a gun when having been primed with a face of African descent. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that what you might think of as a good technique for stopping this, namely to tell people uh, when you look at these pictures, whatever you do, don't focus on the race of the figure, actually ends up magnifying the effect. So if you have three conditions, you don't mention race, you tell people to avoid race, or you tell people to use race, telling people to avoid race has pretty much the effects that telling people to avoid race would. And this is predicted by what's sometimes called the ironic processing literature. If I tell you not to think of a white bear, you are more likely to think of a white bear. Uh, if I tell you to hold an object very, very still, uh, you are more likely to move it. And if I tell you whatever you do, don't move it in the north-south direction, uh, <laughs> there it goes. Right? So this is famous from Freud, played out by Daniel Wegner uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, this one, he literally put an experiment together which uh, involved doing this and then doing it with a golf club just so that he could call it the putt and the pendulum, uh, a reference to a famous Edgar Allan Poe story. Okay, so what doesn't work is just suppressing the information. Here's another thing that doesn't work, telling yourself to think about being accurate. That is this kind of top-down command from the rational part of your soul. Whenever I see a black face, I'll say to myself silently, I want to respond as accurately as possible by thinking the word accurate. Whenever I see a black face on the screen, I will think accurate. What does, however, seem to suppress the tendency of the chariot to pull one in the wrong direction is to tell oneself to think the word safe. That is, figuring out what it was that was driving the horse to the response that you didn't want and countering it in a way that the horse can hear ends up mitigating the effect profoundly. Jennifer is going to have some critiques of the particular methodology that went into this study, but I just want to show you what the data look like. And in my remaining minus one minute, I want to say one of the even more striking things is that it's not just the content of what it is that you present to your horse that matters. It's also the formulation that you use in so speaking. So if you're engaged in something like the shooter game and you ask people to form an intention that says, I will always shoot a person I see with a gun, I will never shoot a person I see with an object, there's no improvement in correction for racial bias in their results. However, this is the punchline, if you put it the other way so that you flagged the cue before the horse engages in its pulling, if I see a person with a gun, I will shoot. If I see a person with an object, I will not shoot. Then you do get a change in the behavior. That is, there's exquisite sensitivity to form as well as content. I have some really cool points to make about the waste and selection test that you are never going to hear. And here's the conclusion. So like the appetitive horse, the third horse is not straightforwardly guided by reason. It needs to hear horse whispering in a language to which it's sensitive. This is not because it's full of passion whose competing force must be countered. Rather, the third horse works silently, but its pull is no less profound. 
Thanks very much. So many of the things that Tamar Gentler has said today strike me as entirely reasonable and correct. And in the interest of keeping things interesting, I'm going to focus peevishly on one uh, point of disagreement between us, uh, which is the principle known as Socratic intellectualism, in the box on your handout, um, identified uh, by the defining quote in, in the Protagoras, knowledge is a noble and commanding thing which cannot be overcome and will, will, and, which, and will not allow a man, if he only knows the difference of good and evil, to do anything which is contrary to knowledge. Um, and I propose to give a, a mad dog defense of, of, this, of this claim in what follows. Uh, Tamar's criticism of, the claim, of, this, of this claim extracted from Plato um, starts with a very clever strategy of, showing, of attempting to show that Plato himself uh, wasn't uh, terrifically committed to it. Uh, so she identifies some passages in the Phaedrus and the Republic uh, where she says Plato's selling a picture which is at odds with uh, the picture we get in, in, in the Protagoras. Um, so so, th so these, are, these are places where the rational part of the soul is identified as struggling with the appetitive and uh, passionate parts and in some cases losing the struggle. Um, and then she advances her own story in which uh, the model is elaborated further to uh, include a horse of a different color uh, that also tugs at the, uh, at the um, rational part of the soul, tugs at the direction that we take. Um, what I want to suggest here is that, in fact, uh, the different images that we get in Plato aren't obviously in tension with each other. They could, in fact, be compatible. Uh, and in fact, I'll, I'll go, go a little further and suggest that even um, the core of what Tamar herself wants to convey is compatible with uh, Socratic intellectualism. There is something noble and commanding about knowledge um, which we can retain even while taking on board a great deal of what uh, Tamar wants to say about um, non-reflective processes of attitude formation. Uh, so to begin, the image of the soul as stuck in a struggle between the rational and the appetitive and spirited parts uh, doesn't speak directly to the place of knowledge. Um, and uh, and the, claim about, the claim about knowledge being a noble and commanding thing um, doesn't itself immediately uh, make any claims about the, about the division of the soul. It's possible to think of the rational part of the soul as being the part of the soul that naturally houses knowledge, but we can draw a distinction between uh, the capacity to know and the knowledge that's contained within that capacity. Even if the rational part of the soul is the only part of the soul that naturally houses knowledge, it could lose a battle to the spirited or the appetitive part um, without knowledge being at fault, as long as the loss was occasioned in a situation where the relevant knowledge was, was lacking. Um, so, so, um, so it's not obvious to me that uh, 
it's it's not it's not obvious to me that that the model the model of the divided soul requires uh, uh, requires any any subordination of knowledge, even if it requires in some instances a subordination of the rational part of the soul. Um, another point of curiosity, as as, as tomorrow's talk proceeded, is uh, how exactly we're understanding the rational part of the soul. We make the transition into the uh, contemporary scene, and we're contrasting the rational part of the soul with the part of the soul that's uh, engaged in what you might call implicit learning. Uh, it seems at that point that the rational part of the soul is being identified as the part of the mind which is capable of engaging in explicit or propositional deliberation, uh, reasoning on consciously available contents towards a conclusion. Um, this is something a little different from the platonic vision of the part of the soul that's naturally uh, the house of knowledge, because we recognize that uh, explicit deliberation on rationally, unconsciously available contents uh, can take us to uh, a judgment which does not constitute knowledge. I mean, we're capable of, for example, reasoning fallaciously. Uh, so, so if you see the rational part of the soul as Tamar progressively did when she shifted over into the contemporary zone, as the part of the mind which engages in explicit deliberation, then again, um, it's possible that, uh, that one can reach a judgment rationally in the sense of reaching it on the basis of conscious deliberation uh, and, uh, and, and have that judgment um, fail to be a judgment for the good uh, and yet, and yet, Socratic intellectualism could be could be upheld because Socratic intellectualism is kind of a, a conditional principle. You know, if you if you possess knowledge of the good, uh, then you can't uh, you can't act contrary to it. Uh, it's rather silent on what happens uh, when any part of your soul produces uh, a judgment which fails to constitute knowledge. Um, so, so I mean, of course, if you're going to defend the Socratic, if you're going to defend Socratic intellectualism, you'll have to have a fairly strong understanding of what it is for somebody to know the difference of good and evil. It can't just be that you have some hazy conception that good and evil um, pick out different things. It's got to be that in, in, the, in the moment of judgment, you know of a course of action uh, that, it is, that it is good and under the, under the relevant uh, mode, of, mode of presentation. And it's, it's, I think, not trivial to show uh, that when one really does have knowledge of the good, uh, one can act uh, contrary to that knowledge. I mean, especially if you think of action as requiring, uh, as requiring judgment. Um, I mean, as opposed to, for example, you know, situations in which one uh, reacts instinctively uh, or, 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 or automatically, and, and the reaction is only dubiously an instance of, uh, of action. Um, so I, I think it's actually conceivable that, that you, could, you could argue that there's um, no case at all in which we ever act contrary to knowledge in the sense that's really uh, identified in the formula of Socratic intellectualism. That's, I think, actually quite a, quite a hard, hard thing to argue. I'm going to today just argue that the kinds of cases that Tamar's identified as being cases in which we are fully in possession of a certain kind of knowledge of the good... Uh, 
and, and, we're, and, we're, and we're acting contrary to it. And those are cases in which actually knowledge, knowledge is lacking. So I'm going to take a closer look at the, uh, at the studies that she's, uh, that she's identified. Um, so I want to say um, I'm going to be taking in what follows. I think she's actually right that um, implicit attitudes can take us away from our reasoned commitments. Um, but I'm going, to be, I'm, I'm going to be, in what follows, taking reasoned commitments in this sense to be the commitments that we arrive at through reasoning or through reflective thinking. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to insist that not every reasoned commitment in this sense amounts to knowledge. So if I've reasoned fallaciously, if I started with bad premises, I don't necessarily attain knowledge uh, when I attain a reasoned commitment. Um, and I also want to say not every instance of knowledge is a reasoned commitment either. So I think it's possible for the uh, rich associative processes that Tamara identified to uh, themselves generate knowledge for us. So I think those distinctions between uh, what's reasoned and what's not and what's knowledge and what's not uh, cut across each other uh, orthogonally. Um, I do think there's some real significance to the line between what's conscious and what's not. Um, but I think I read the significance somewhat differently. So I'll just give a very quick sketch of what I see as the guiding insight of dual process theory. According to dual process theory, in its most current formulation, the key distinction that separates intuitive thought, on the one hand, from reflective thought, is not something having to do with speed or affect or, um, or, or bias. Uh, it's something that has to do very specifically with actually an aspect of consciousness. It has to do with the engagement of working memory in, the, in, in processing. So um, in intuitive thinking, a problem is presented to you, and that can be presented through a consciously available stimulus. I've given you an easy anagram to solve if you're one of the lucky people who has a handout. Uh, I actually thought with this proximity to the World Cup, there wouldn't be so many people here today, so wow. Um, so, so you can look at that slightly scrambled handout, uh, slightly scrambled, the handout scrambled too, slightly scrambled anecdote, um, anagram, and you can solve it uh, at a glance uh, without any introspective availability into the processes within you that enabled you to come up with the word spontaneous uh, when you saw those slightly jumbled letters. Um, reflective thinking, on the other hand, is the kind of thinking you engage with the harder anagram there, giving you a string of letters, and if you try to put them in the right order, if you try to get a word out of that, you have to do some sequential thinking through consciously available contents. Um, reflection isn't divorced from intuition. Reflection is a series, it's a series of cycles of intuition. Um, and the output of one stage functions as input to the next. Uh, and the anagram is methodical, just so you don't spend the rest of the, of the talk trying to solve it. Um, so, so uh, that, second kind of, that second kind of thinking went through working memory, which is a limited capacity resource, the contents of which are always available to consciousness, that sort of definitive of, of working memory. So consciousness matters to whether an, an attitude is generated intuitively or reflectively. Um, but it actually doesn't uh, dictate whether or not this attitude will be subsequently available for use in deliberation. So, at, so attitudes and judgments that are reached at intuitively um, can be just as available for subsequent deliberation as attitudes that are generated reflectively. Okay, now I'm going to specifically talk about the 
uh, the empirical work that Tamar sees as supportive of her position. So specifically, the CV study, um, she describes as marking a conflict between our evaluations on the one hand and our reflective commitments on the other. And in fact, she's characterizing the scientists who are participating in this study and engaged in these you know, biased evaluations of the uh, uh, Johns and Jennifers that, whose CVs they're evaluating. She, she's characterizing them as knowing uh, the equal competence of equally trained men and women, even while uh, they are making their biased evaluations. Their knowledge, she thinks, lacks the power uh, to restrain that third horse of implicit association uh, and uh, guide their conduct appropriately. Uh, and I'm actually going to challenge the characterization of these biased scientists as having knowledge. I, I think, actually, if you read the study a little bit more closely, it's, it's a stretch to characterize them that way. You really can't. Um, so, uh, so, so one thing is, Master Pearson and colleagues didn't actually poll the scientists on their explicit attitudes to women. They didn't, they didn't ask, do you think that men and women uh, who are equally trained are equally competent? They didn't actually ask that. So it's a, it's a presumption that they would have that attitude. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to say it's a, it's a fair presumption. But they did run... Uh, uh, tool, a diagnostic tool, at the end of the study, after the CV evaluations had been done, um, called the Modern Sexism Scale, uh, where they had their participants respond, uh, rate their agreement to statements such as, it is rare to see women depicted in a sexist manner on television, and in general, um, people treat husbands and wives equally, and you had to, uh, you had to uh, indica indicate the extent of your agreement with these claims. Scoring high on the modern sexism scale uh, is correlated with, um, it's correlated with actually uh, uh, not particularly feminist attitudes towards women, and it's correlated with having false beliefs about the competence of women and about the prevalence of women, for example, in, in male-dominated uh, male professions. And, now this is the interesting thing, so, so the higher you scored on that modern sexism scale in the in the study, the more likely you were to have produced a biased evaluation of the female candidate. This was a between subjects design, so everyone saw only one of the two CVs, only the male CV or only the female CV. And Mazur Kissin and colleagues um, understood their results to be demonstrating skewed or biased evaluations on the women and not on the men. Now, you might think sexism could work equally to you know, inflate men and depress women. Um, at least in this study, that did not seem to be the case. And their reasoning was that um, they did not see a correlation between the extent of sexism or, ex or the scores on the modern sexism scale uh, with uh, evaluations of men. They did see it with women. There was variance, substantial variance, in the evaluations of of the CVs, if you look across the whole group of participants. So not everybody was, not everybody was responding to these CVs in the same way. There were people whose evaluations were unskewed, right, in the group. It's just on average, people were skewed more negative uh, with, the, uh, with the women, and in a way that correlated with their um, available attitudes. Now notice, I'm, I'm characterizing the attitudes that are coming out on the modern sexism scale as available. Uh, and that's something that's maybe a little bit controversial to do in the context of Tamar's paper, because she's suggesting these implicit associations are things that we don't have access to. Um, I think that's an empirical claim, and I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't quite agree with it. It's true that 
um, traditional self-report measures of implicit attitudes um, correlate only, I think, 0 0.24, 0.25 with um, variation in, in, those, uh, in those implicit attitudes. However, if you ask people, not just basically, you know, how racist are you? But if you ask people, um, if you ask people to predict the extent of their, uh, of their uh, stereotype-driven behavior, or if you ask them, for example, this is something that's been done with attitudes to, uh, to homosexuals, you ask, ask them not your actual feelings, but your gut feelings. People are actually pretty good at reporting, uh, at, at, at reporting something that correlates with them with their performance on, uh, on implicit tests. I myself don't think there's any such thing as a distinctive type of mental state, which is an implicit attitude. I think that there are, uh, there are, we operationalize the concept uh, in the following way. We call something an implicit attitude which, when it's an attitude that is revealed to us through implicit pr testing, implicit pr um, uh, measures like the, uh, like the IAT. Um, but a lot of those attitudes are also available to us in other ways if you find um, delicate ways of eliciting, uh, eliciting uh, self-report. And certainly things like gut feelings are, um, are subjectively uh, are subjectively available. Now, um, Tamar's certainly right that even if implicitly tested attitudes are available to us when we focus on them in the right way, they're certainly not always present to mind. Uh, they can diverge from our reflective commitments. They can lead us away from those commitments uh, without warning. Um, and in the last section of her paper, Tamar suggested that those funny attitudes, whatever they are, uh, they call for a very special kind of self-management that traditional self-management strategies fail uh, when we're locked in a struggle with this uh, mysterious third horse. Um, and I think that might be overstating things, because I think in some cases, at least, um, some very traditional strategies work extremely well, and one of them is just to take more time. So, so uh, and that's something that works equally in the domain of straightforward, uh, explicitly conscious, uh, rational deliberation. Uh, and in uh, responses that are intuitively driven. So the shooter bias effect that Stuart and Payne were uh, able to elicit is something that only emerges if you put people under very heavy time pressure. Um, so if people uh, have to respond in that experiment before 630 milliseconds, then, uh, then they show the effect. They, don't, they stop showing it if you, if you give people just a little bit more, uh, a little bit more time. Um, and about Stuart and Payne in particular, I think I'm not entirely happy with the manipulations that they run, uh, and I'm not happy about them uh, for reasons that eventually lead us back to Socratic intellectualism. Uh, so specifically, um, it's true that, um, actually in the, first, in the first experiment that Stuart and Payne ran, um, they did not see uh, decreased uh, error in trials where a black face appeared before a tool. You weren't supposed to shoot in those trials. They actually saw the same, the same rate of error. What they saw was just uh, increased error with the white faces and, uh, uh, and uh, decrease in... Uh, in false, false negatives. So this, there, there's sort of a, a funny pattern there. The second, the second trial, they actually did see 
um, they did see decreased errors on trials where blackface appeared before a tool. Uh, the decrease wasn't, uh, it wasn't magnificent. It didn't succeed in canceling the stereotype. In fact, across all conditions, uh, it was always the case that people were less likely to uh, have the shoot reaction when a white face appeared before a tool than when a black face appeared before a tool. They never eradicated that. Um, but they did succeed in, uh, in reducing the difference between the, between the groups. And I suppose that's something kind of, uh, kind of attractive. Um, but it looks to me like the, the, what, the net result of the uh, particular manipulations that got applied um, was uh, conversion of one type of error into, into another type of error. It wasn't actually uh, an across-the-board enhancement of a capacity to respond to the task in a way that was uh, not uh, subject to racial interference. The task was still being, uh, still being poorly, uh, poorly performed, uh, even though the uh, types of errors that were being made shifted, shifted category. Um, so, so, I mean, on its, on its own, the manipulation that Stuart and Payne tried did something attractive. It reduced the black and white disparity, even though it was reducing it by making people make more errors with the white people. Um, but I think it wasn't epistemically unproblematic. It's not what we'd want to do ultimately, right? Even if we're very clear that the association between blackness and a failure of safety is false empirically, white people are in fact twice as likely to own guns as blacks are. Uh, and, of course, morally extremely troubling. Um, so I think that my feeling is the reason why we feel this isn't quite the right way to do it um, is that we are, at heart, um, Socratic intellectualists. We want to see people acting knowledgeably. Um, and, I think, uh, and I think, actually, Tamar also, at heart, she may not know this about herself, is a Socratic intellectualist, right? So, so she's somebody who thinks... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's something, I, I mean, she, she, um, she emphasizes that, of course, it's very hard to undo intuitive impressions that have been formed by uh, a long history of, uh, of de de deceptive experience, right? And our experience, certainly with, uh, with race, is deceptive, and with, with, with gender as well, because we're subject to such heavy media uh, manipulation and misrepresentations of these dem demographic groups, um, we can, as, as uh, Tamara observes, uh, work to structure our external environment um, so that our experiences over time will become more accurate. We can campaign against distorted media representations of groups. We can campaign against reading lists at Oxford um, that have maybe distorted, oh well. Uh, <laughs> I have a conversation about that at dinner last night, which um, was very peculiar. Anyway, um, but, uh, but we can try to restructure our external environment so that it represents more balanced and more accurate um, uh, characterization of what, uh, what people are capable of. Uh, and of course, we can also take steps to try and reduce reliance on decision making that is based on types of judgment that don't constitute knowledge. Um, so we can uh, try to get ourselves in situations where we'll be able to devote more time 
uh, to decisions as opposed to making them under time pressure, under cognitive load. Um, but I think uh, that in, in these cases, what you're trying to do is to increase the extent of your knowledge. In, in the first case, you're increasing the extent of your intuitive as opposed to reflective knowledge. Uh, and the second method, what you're trying to do is shift the basis of your action uh, away from judgments made in ignorance towards judgments that themselves constitute knowledge. Uh, and, I, and I think Tamar's, Tamar's work also um, identifies another area in which our knowledge can be, uh, uh, can be helpful in put, putting, us, putting us on the right path. Um, and that's, she's very interested in increasing our knowledge of our own psychological frailties and um, generating better knowledge how uh, no, uh, knowledge of how to overcome these frailties and compensate compensate for them. So I think, you know, the 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 way we manage this third horse is precisely the way we manage the first and second, uh, and that's through uh, and that's through knowledge. Go knowledge. <laughs> So I think Jennifer's comments fall into two main categories, one of which is a critique of some of the empirical studies on which the claims that I made were based. And I'm happy to spend some time talking about why I think those studies are exemplary of a much richer literature, though I agree with Jennifer that there are times when studies are advertised as showing a reduction in bias where all they end up doing is showing a reduction in sensitivity, and I'll give an example of that in a second. The, the deeper objection that Jennifer has to me, which is what is the role of knowledge in guiding our reflective and non-reflective real-time actions, seems to me a place where I think there may not be as, dis as much distance between us as philosophy requires us adversarially uh, to pretend that there is. Uh, so let me say, I'm, I, I'm going to go back to the, to the empirical stuff in a second, but let me say, with regard to what I took to be Jennifer's ultimate claim, which is that the task of reason and reflection is to help us recognize what the world that we would want to be living in looks like, and then set up mechanisms so that those are the sorts of encounters that we have, is entirely in accord with, I think, what I was saying, and I think deeply in accord with the authors from whose work I took inspiration for this project, that is Plato on the one hand and Aristotle on the other. I think both the Republic and the Nicomachean Ethics are descriptions of how to arrange experience on the basis of reason so that a soul structured so as to have non-rational parts can have the experiences that it requires to act in accord with the demands of morality and other normative things like the demands of beauty. Uh, with regard to the, the sometimes we correct by making everything worse, um, my favorite example of a study like this, I was for a while interested in literature that suggested that individuals raised in a society structured by race tended to be less good at recognizing faces of African descent than faces of European descent, which was particularly problematic in police lineups. 
So basically, you take a typical white American and you show them four black faces, and they're less able to make distinctions between them than they are among a sequence of white faces that differ uh, equally with regard to whatever measures are used for determining physiognomical differences. So there's this fabulous study that erases this race effect, right, so that all of a sudden people are equally good at identifying white and black faces, and you think this is incredible. What did they do to ratchet up the ability to discriminate among black faces so that you could finally use this in police lineups? And it turns out the study involves getting people drunk so they can't tell anybody apart. (laughs) So I agree that there are studies whose headlines may fall apart under a certain amount of pressure. Okay. 